0: Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. In this episode of the podcast, in which we are walking through the Divine Comedy Passage by Passage, we are up to lines 58 through 93 of Canto 6 of Inferno. If you're just dropping in here, we are amongst the gluttons in the third circle of hell, and we are with Chaco, one of the gluttons who has sat up in the muck and hail and snow and putrid ground to address Dante he seemed to come to a stop in the last episode and not say anything else. And yet he goes on. Here is more from Chaco. I, that is the pilgrim, I replied to him, Chaco, your affliction so weighs on me that it has pushed me to tears. But tell me, if you know, what will happen to the citizens of the partition city? if there are any who are just, and explain why all that discord has struck it. And he to me,
1: after much antagonism they will come to blood, and the forest party will force the other out with great carnage, but then this party will fall within three summers and the other rise, because of the force of the one who is waiting in the wings. For a long time, with high foreheads, these will hold the other down with a ponderous weight, despite the tears and despite the shame. Two are just, and no one pays attention. Pride, envy, and avarice are the three sparks that have ignited their hearts."
0: That's how he finished his lamentations, and I to him, "...I would like you to keep on teaching me, and give me the gift of more words. And Tagliato, who are so valued, Jacopo Rusticucci, Arigo, and Masca, and the others who turn their minds to doing good—tell me where they are, and make me understand, for I am burdened by a great desire to know whether heaven sweetens them or
1: hell curdles them. And he, they are among the black souls; diverse sins push them far down to the bottom. If you go down that far, you will be able to see them. But when you're back in the sweet world, I pray that you bring me to the minds of others. I tell you no more, and I won't respond to you again.
0: His clear eyes twisted into a squint. He stared at me a little, then bent his head down and fell prone among the other blind shades. That's where we're going to drop it. We're going to leave it when Chaco falls back into the muck of the gluttons on the ground. And we're going to take this passage in four distinct segments. Dante's questions, Chaco's answers, Dante's further questions, and Chaco's further answers. So four bits. Dante starts by wanting more from Chaco. Whatever Chaco has given Dante already is clearly not enough. And so Dante has more questions. He says to Chaco that your affliction so weighs on me, and you should watch this because weight and weighing are a metaphoric connector in this passage. Much will be pulled down with weight, and it is fitting because we are amongst the gluttons. So he says, so weighs on me that it has pushed me to tears, but tell me if you know what will happen to the citizens of the partitioned city, if there are any who are just, and explain why all that discord has struck it. Three questions about the citizens of the city, about whether anyone is just, and why is Florence in so much trouble? torment. We know this is Florence because in the last passage, uh, Chaco identified himself with Dante the Pilgrim as Florentines. It may not be, as I tried to explain last time, that Chaco is a Florentine, maybe, maybe not, but they're certainly living in the same city. So two things about this bit and Dante's questions, not just that there are three questions, but Mm, a little bit more. Notice when he says, Chaco, your affliction so weighs on me that it has pushed me to tears. This is a glance back to Canto Five and the Lustful. I argued in the last time, based on other scholars' work, that there are all kinds of callbacks to the fifth canto inside of the sixth. And here's another one. He so it weighs me, your affliction, that it has pushed me to tears. Remember in amongst the lustful, Dante oh, loses it. it, actually passes out because his pity so overwhelms him. Here, we seem to see less pity. He still feels a great deal of sorrow for the damned, but you'll notice that it has pushed him to tears but not necessarily to losing it. We're not back at smarrito. We're not at this point in which he's lost. In the fifth canto, he's actually lost, and he uses that word smarrito from the opening of the comedy to describe himself, to describe his lost state amongst the lustful. Here, we have a response that is not equally as overwhelming. It's big, it's pushed me to tears, but not so. Let me bring up a second point on these three questions. Why does the pilgrim ask these questions? Many scholars seem to skip over this problem because of the weight of the prophecy to come. What Chaco is gonna say is so big that they blow right over these lines and never really answer the question, why would Dante ask Chaco this? This is one of the damned. Dante has already been afflicted by Francesca. He's already been brought to, well, a state of unconsciousness by Francesca's story. Why would he turn back to the damned and push them again? Hasn't he learned his lesson that the damned can push him right over the edge? It's a difficult question to ask in terms of motivation. I don't just think it comes down to a modern interpretation of character motivation versus, let's say, whatever a medieval uh, notion of that motivation would be. It's just Odd that Dante pushes questions given what happened in Canto Five. There's several ways to look at this, and let me give you three different ways to look at why does Dante ask Chaco further questions after Chaco seems to go silent in the last passage. One, of course, is we could just chalk this up to ham-handed plotting. Once again, I've done this once before in this podcast, but once again, Dante needs to get certain words in Chaco's mouth, and so he's going to ask these questions essentially to prompt. Chaco to give the answers that the poet wants Chaco to give. If that's the case, again, it's clumsy plotting mechanism. And listen, plotting in 1300, 1303, 4, 1310, 1312, is nothing like plotting in 2020. So we could argue for a ham-headed plotting based on modern notions that we wouldn't actually be destroying the poem. We would be seeing the poem as an older way of writing in which characters aren't necessarily so involved in their own psychologies. That's a possible answer. A second possible answer is Dante pushes Chaco because they're fellow Florentines, or at least they're related to the city of Florence. And since he's never come yet upon a Florentine in all of comedy, since this is the first one, it seems like, oh, we've we've got something in common, me and you, Chaco. And so I'm going to ask you some questions about it. But the questions he asks are deep and difficult questions. What will happen? He's asking the damned the future and explain why all that discord has struck it. That's heavy historical analysis. Now, it's true. Dante has already been given the future once by Virgil at the end of Canto 1. Maybe Dante is trained now to think of the damned as able to give him the future. It still seems a little odd. Or, let me give you a third reason, does it all go back to Chaco's altered appearance, to the question of the way history has erased him? I argued this in the last episode of the podcast, or erases us. In other words, is there an irony here that he has found a figure who is connected to him politically and yet at the same time has been erased by the mists of history. And the irony is that he would push this figure to answer some very fundamental questions. If that's the case, Then again, there is an irony, hmm, there is a difficult level of wit running underneath the text itself that the poet is exhibiting for us. Enough about Dante's questions. Let's get to the answers. Chaco says to Dante, after much antagonism, they will come to blood. This is the first personal prophecy in the poem. We've had Virgil's world prophecy, cosmic prophecy, back in Canto One, in which the the dog, the greyhound, will come and put to death the she-wolf and oh, this all kind of Christmas-sounding, messianic-sounding prophecy that goes on there. And that's more of a cosmic level of prophecy. This is the first of, guess how many? Yes, nine the number of Beatrice, and the number of three, the Trinity squared, nine, the first of nine personal prophecies in the poem about dante and florence i'm going to give you some history behind this but let me just explain the lines just kind of in their mm, their straightforwardness before we get back into the history after much antagonism Chiaco says they will come to blood they the citizens of the city will come to blood and the forest party that is the white Guelphs led by the Cherky family that is Dante's party. The forest party will force the other, that is, the black gelts, the Donatis, will force the other out with great carnage. But then this party, the forest party, will fall, the white gelfs, within three summers. it's The text is actually within three suns. I'll tell you why I think it's summer is the better translation in a minute. Within three summers or suns and the other, that is, the black gelfs will rise because of the force of one who is waiting in the wings. That's a difficult line. I've translated it with a modern idiom, waiting in the wings, hugging the shore, who is just off stage of one who's sitting back there waiting for his turn to come on and do his part. For a long time with high foreheads, that is very arrogantly with their heads, you know, held up, looking down at everybody. For a long time with high foreheads, These will hold the other down with a ponderous weight. Notice more heaviness, more weight in the canto. So these, the blacks, will hold the other down, the whites with ponderous weight, despite the tears and despite the shame. Two are just, we'll come back to this in a minute, and no one pays attention. Pride, envy, and avarice are the three sparks that have ignited their hearts. Remember in the last episode, I told you that Chaco has connected gluttony and envy. Here, we've got more connected up. Pride, envy, and avarice in the circle of the gluttons are the three sparks that have ignited their hearts. A gluttonous body politic seems to give rise to the other deadly sins. The more serious deadly sins, pride, envy, and avarice, or greed. But notice the theological mm, niggle that's going on here. These sins are not ends in themselves the way they would traditionally be interpreted in Christian theology. Rather, they are the sparks, the favile, the three sparks that have ignited their hearts. They ignite social chaos. The sins are not the end in themselves. Gluttony or pride or envy or avarice is not an end in itself. Rather, for Dante, it seems to be that which brings on social chaos. This is a giant point because you're basically redefining sin. The poet is basically taking sin and claiming it is kind of an underlying motivation to social chaos rather than an end in itself. Let me just jump back and explain the history. Let me first say one bit. The poem, if you remember, is dated, not when it's written, but when it's supposedly taking place, in the year 1300. And if you remember, I said it in March, starting on March 25th of 1300. Others will start it in early April of 1300. There's a discrepancy based on this because Easter actually fell in early April. But I think there's a reference to the beginning of the world, which is March 25th. It's uh, Go back in previous episodes, this is all explained. But anyway, the poem is taking place. The Pilgrim is walking in 1300 on Easter weekend. Chaco is explaining the events basically of a few weeks after the dating of the poem. This is starting in May of 1300, and he's describing events that run for the next approximately two years to 1302. Okay, so what are those events? On May 1st, 1300 there are riots that break out in florence between the white Guelphs or the cherokee family and their supporters and the black Guelphs or the donati family and their supporters and remember dante is a member of the white Guelphs connected to the cherokee family although he has married gemma donati in a cross clan marriage these riots break out Dante is at this point a civilian politician on what we might call the city council of Florence. So Dante is in political power when these riots break out on May 1st, 1300. The leaders from both parties are subdued and then exiled, including, and this will come up later in the poem, so I'm just bringing it up right now, including Dante's good friend, and rival poet Guido Cavalcanti. I'm just going to say that and hold it because it's going to wait. <laughs> we got to wait a few cantos ahead before that comes back at us. Flash forward, June 1301. So a year and a month or so, a year and a month, yeah, or later, all the leaders of the Black Elves are finally Exile the whites, kind of uh, take over and exile not just the people who started the riots, but the whole leadership of the Black Gulf or Donati clan. In about a year later, this causes, of course, much friction in town. And Pope Boniface VIII sends his envoy, Charles, as a mediator. Charles, Charles, Count of Valois, is the brother of the French King Philip the fourth or Philip the fair at this moment when when Charles gets sent as a peace mediator to Florence he's actually on the Italian Peninsula fighting for Sicily an entire battle has broken out over control of Sicily And just to tell you the end of that battle, uh, Charles basically ends up going home with nothing. He ends up losing everything and going home and being branded as not much more than a looter. But that's outside of our story. We're just getting him entering Florence as a peace mediator. He doesn't enter as a peace mediator. Instead, he comes in heavily armed. He basically breaks into the city. He supports the blacks, the Donatis, the Black Guelves, who are part of Pope Boniface VIII's allies. And he, Charles, Count of Valois, exiles the whites. This begins the problem of the whites being thrown out, as Chaco tells us. They are utterly destroyed, and by the fall of 1302, they're all gone. So if you just count from May 1st, 1300 through 1301 to the fall of 1302, you pass through three summers. It's not three years, but you do pass through three summers. And thus I interpreted that passage as three summers as three, instead of three suns, is, what is it's what it reads in the Tuscan. Let me go to a second part of the passage. In answering the question, are any just, Chaco says, two are just. This has caused a great deal of commentary over the years. It started, all this starts, with Pietro di Dante, Dante's son, Pietro di Dante. And Pietro di Dante interprets this as two sorts of laws, are just that is natural and man made. When you when I say natural, don't think of biology. Don't think the natural sciences. Now think natural as in divine, that which is divinely ordered, because God is the author of nature in this theology. And so the natural laws are the divine laws, and then there are man made laws. Saint Thomas Aquinas actually picks this up this notion from aristotle that there are two sorts of laws there's the natural and the man-made and so pietro di dante uh, basically argues that what chaco is saying there's two kind of just laws there's a divine law and a man-made law and nobody's paying attention to either of them and since no one's paying attention to either of them conflagration breaks out this reading of the passage is actually not used by many. Within even just a few decades after Pietro di Dante, people are already trying to assign names to these two. Not two sorts of laws are just, but two people are just. And there have been many identifications of who these people are. Here's what I think. I think this whole prophecy has an apocalyptic edge to it. Florence going up in flames, as it were. And since it All of these prophecies get this little apocalyptic edge, we shouldn't be surprised that they pick up pieces of the biblical apocalypse. In the book that the Protestants call Revelations or that the Catholics call the Apocrypha of St. John, in chapter 11, there's a tale of two just witnesses in the end times who show up and preach justice. They're able to open and close the doors of heaven and do all sorts of crazy things. And these two just witnesses, uh, from a moment, Kind of stay the Antichrist's move forward. I think that this may be, ha- that this bit from Chaco may have resonances with this Revelation prophecy. Uh, for many years, uh, the, these two witnesses in Revelation were identified as Enoch. And Elijah, two figures from Torah who never died, who never faced death. Uh, Enoch was just taken up into heaven, and Elijah goes up in a chariot. So these two figures that never died showed up. It's funny that this is often advanced in modern theology uh, because this was originally a Gnostic idea out of the Gospel of Nicodemus, a a heretical gospel. But nonetheless, it's always been held that these may be uh, Enoch and Elijah, or they may be Elijah and Moses, who are the two figures that are in the Transfiguration, or they they just made me unknown, really just guys. My point, again, is that it seems like there's an apocalyptic overtone to this prophecy. And so because of all of that, Chackle brings up this notion of two just guys witnesses, two just figures who were still holding on to justice despite the conflagration going around them. And therefore, he's tying this back to kind of end of the world stuff. This is important because ultimately, we're not going to see it in this passage, but in the next passage on the next episode of Walking with Dante, this whole entire canto is going to turn toward the apocalypse and toward the, the last judgment. And so I think that we're getting a little echo here, setting us up for the end of the canto. This is a Dantean technique that I see throughout the poem that is offering you small little tidbits of hints that build up to a grander moment in which it's just stated outright. There it is. And here, I think what we're getting is this apocalyptic resonance that's going to ring out through the canto. Okay, that's the prophecy. Complicated, full of Florentine history, Elliptical in places two are just one who is waiting in the wings. Elliptical, difficult, out of an apocalyptic tradition that arises from Old Testament or Torah prophets like Daniel and Zechariah and moves forward to the apocalypse of St. John. This kind of symbolic, elliptical, opaque understanding of what would be the future if the pilgrim is walking in 1300, although these events have already occurred by the time the poet is writing the poem. Now on to Dante's second questions. That's how he finished his lamentations, the pilgrim says, and I to him, I would like you to keep on teaching me and give me the gift of more words. Then Dante starts through a list of figures. Ferranata, and Teguayo, who are so valued, Jacopo, Rusticucci, Arrigo, and Mosca, and the others who turn their minds doing good, tell me where they are and make me understand, for I am burdened by a great desire to know whether heaven sweetens them or hell curdles them. Several things about this passage. One, this is Dante's further push for more information. Dante, the pilgrim, he's being a little gluttonous. He's wanting more and more. Every time Chaco comes to a finish, Dante presses him for more. There's a mm, sometimes posited notion that Dante the Pilgrim gets complicit in the sins of hell. And perhaps we can see that here. Let me explain this for a moment. And let me just say that this is contentious interpretation. But Dante the Pilgrim seems at times to kind of become identified with the sins going around him. For example, in Limbo, these are the ones who, ooh, you know, died without baptism and without understanding the Christian message and all that stuff. And yet Dante becomes one of them walking across the water and into the castle in lust. He is overcome overwhelmed with emotion until his whole body gives way much the way lust does and here he seems to be pressing for more and more information out of Chaco more and more as if he's not satisfied with the answers he's been given the reason that this is a little bit contentious is because you have to then make the claim that Dante the pilgrim is in some way unaware of what's going on, and the poet behind him is showing us that the pilgrim is becoming complicit in the sins, and many people don't want to see this, in my opinion. I think it's sitting back behind the text. I don't think it's a major theme of Inferno, but I do think it sits back there, that the pilgrim is pulled as in a gravitational well toward many, not all, many of the sins. It's not 100%. But many of the sins, we can watch him get pulled slightly toward them. And here, for me, it's this not being satisfied, wanting more and more, asking the damned, the damned of all people, asking the damned for more information. So, I want you to keep teaching me, he says, give me the gift of more words. And then he lists off some figures. Ferinata, Teguayo, Rusticucci, Arigo, and Mosca. These five figures that are listed off, you'll notice that Dante identifies them as good and others who have turned their minds to doing good. Tell me where they are and make me understand, for I'm burdened by a great desire to know. This is always pointed out, but I'll point it out to you now. Two things. One, this is an Ubisunt. Where are this is a, a topus in which you list off the dead and you basically say, Where are they? Which ties back to Chaco's erasure from history. These figures are not necessarily erased, especially Ferranata and Mosca are definitely not erased from history. Also, these figures will occur or at least. Four of the five will occur in Inferno. Ferinata, wait till the heretics in Canto Ten will meet this Ferinata. Tagliato and Rusticucci, wait until Canto Sixteen will meet them among the homosexuals. Mosca, wait until Canto Twenty Eight will meet him among the schismatics. But Ariago, no clue, never occurs again. Notice Chaco says, if you go down, you'll be able to see them. Ariago, or as we might say, Harry, Harry is never brought up again. Two ways to take this. One, that Dante intended to write something about Ariago, about Harry, and never did. He lapsed out of his memory, or he never got to it, or he was gonna put Ariaga somewhere, didn't put him anywhere. Possible, and that's possible, that it just never came up. Or what I prefer, I like the irony that Ariago is forgotten in the same way that Chaco is forgotten. I love that even if that's not intended, it happens in the passage. In the way that Chaco has been erased by the mists of history, Ariago is also erased in the poem. We never find out who this Harry is. Others, Farinata, oh my gosh, one of the biggest speeches of all, Inferno. Tagayama and Rusticucci, wow, the cantos on the homosexuals, some of the longest time spent on any single set of sinners. And Mosca, terrible, terrible human who did a terrible thing in history that led to unbelievable bloodshed. These people are all going to be there, but who's Harry and where is he? Notice one last thing about this passage. Tell me where they are, the pilgrim says, and make me understand for I am burdened by a great desire to know whether heaven sweetens them or hell curdles them. He's using the language of food. I said Hell curdles them. There are other ways to translate that. Embitters them, poisons them, makes them astringent. But these are all taste functions. Maybe not poisons, but kind of. Especially if you live in a world with bad food preservation. um, It's important to know what food smells like and tastes like before you swallow it. But notice Dante is using Mm, gluttonous imagery heaven sweetens them or hell curdles them is Dante the pilgrim speaking the language that Chaco understands this is what a glutton would understand and so I'm going to speak your language to try to get more information out of you or again is Dante a little bit complicit in the sins of hell I think it's actually an unclear answer. I think it's it's a little bit opaque and difficult to figure out. And I think it makes the poem all the more, well, to use a gluttonous word? Delicious. It makes the poem all the more redolent. (laughs) I can only use gluttonous words. It it makes the poem all the more tasty because it, it allows us to try to figure this out and it makes us sit here and think, hmm, is the pilgrim using the language of the gluttons because he knows that's how Chaco will respond? Or is the pilgrim being gravitationally pulled toward the way gluttons think? Interesting and interesting. Interesting that Dante wants to know more from the damned. Do you trust the damned? It seems that maybe you should, because Chaco actually outlines the events of the Florentine War, the beginning of the conflagration of the Guelphs. So, since Chaco is rather sure there, do we then trust the damned? We weren't supposed to trust Francesco, were we? So why are we trusting Chaco here? Well, because he seems to be telling the truth. Hmm, is he? That moves us to the fourth part of the passage, Chaco's second answer. Chaco says, they are among the blacker souls. If you think about what Dante said, Dante wants to know others, these and others who have turned their minds to doing good. Chaco says, no way. Dante thinks they may be good. Chaco says, they're among the blacker souls. Now, this is curious. Farinata is definitely not among the blacker souls. Tegiayo and Rusticucci, amongst the homosexuals, after limbo, they are treated just about the best of any of the damned. Mosca, yes. Mosca is definitely amongst the blacker souls. So Chaco's understanding of them would be then that they are lower down than he is and so they're blacker, but when we get to them, they're not going to seem blacker. Or is that that we're being clouded by them? Unclear. And we'll talk much, much, much more about this. But again, either Chaco's wrong and they're not necessarily blacker than he is, or we are being seduced by these very sinners later on in the same way that Francesca tried to seduce us. We have to solve it when we get to Cantos 10 and Cantos 16. Mosca, no problem in Canto 28. We'll know exactly who he is. He is the Blacker Souls. They are among the Blacker Souls, Jekyll says. Diverse sins push them down far to the bottom. Notice this weight. Weight weighing down. Weighs on me that the, that the Blacks hold the Whites down with... A, ponderous weight. Notice this constant reference. Diverse sins push them far to the bottom of hell. If you go down that far, you'll be able to see them, except for Ariago, except for Harry. As I said, we don't ever see him. But when you're back in the sweet world and notice that Chaco picks up that kind of language, Chaco the glutton sees the world of the living as sweet. When you're back in the sweet world, I pray that you bring me to the minds of others. I tell you no more and won't respond again. This is the third time Chaco goes silent. Rather than a monologue that we had with Francesca, this has been a, at least rudimentary, dialogue. It has been a back and forth between the pilgrim and Chaco. And I think the irony here is superb. Chaco says, listen, when you get back up above, just speak my name so that people will remember me. (laughs) Remember I told you? It's almost impossible to say who Chaco is. And I think that is intentional. I pray that you bring me to the minds of others. Okay, Dante did. He brought Chaco to our minds. Problem is, we don't know who he is. Problem is, we can't nail him down. Problem is, we can't give him a place in history. And he falls silent and then this last bit which is so wild his clear eyes twisted into a squint he stared at me a little then bent his head down and felt prone among the other blind chains the humanity just slips away from him his clear eyes turn to a squint then he just stares you know with a kind of dead stare then his head falls and he falls back into the muck of the ground. He he sinks away from his own humanity. And I just want to say, this is where we're headed. We are headed to a redefinition of sin. And there's a little hint of it right here. A redefinition of a sin, not as an action, but as a loss of humanity. But that has got to wait for future episodes of the podcast, Walking with Dante. Okay, this was a complicated passage, and you know what? I've gone on a long time about it, and the episode seems to have gone on for forever, but let me just read you the passage one more time, because it is complicated, and it is the first Florentine prophecy. So here we go. Inferno Canto 6, lines 58 through 93. This is my own translation, by the way. You can look it up on my website, MarkScarborough.com or WalkingWithDante.com, or you can get a facing page translation of others who have done... much better job than I, of translating the Tuscan, and you can see it there, but here's the passage one more time. I replied to him, Chaco, your affliction so weighs on me that it has pushed me to tears, but tell me if you know what will happen to the citizens of the partition city, if there are any who are just, and explain why all that discord has struck it. And he to me,
1: after much antagonism they will come to blood. And the forest party will force the other out, with great carnage. And then this party will fall within three summers, and the other rise because of the force of the one who is waiting in the wings. For a long time with high foreheads, these will hold the other down with a ponderous weight, despite the tears and despite the shame. Two are just. No one pays attention. Pride, envy, and avarice are the three sparks that have ignited their hearts.
0: That's how he finished his lamentation. And I to him, I would like you to keep on teaching me, and give me the gift of more words, Ferranata and Taghiaio, who are so valued, Jacopo, Rustucci, Arrigo, and Mosca, and the others who turn their minds to doing good. Tell me where they are, and make me understand, for I am burdened by a great desire to know whether heaven sweetens them or hell curdles them. And
1: he they are among the blacker souls. Diverse sids push them far down to the bottom. If you go down that far, you'll be able to see them. When you are back in the sweet world, I pray that you bring me to the minds of others. I tell you no more and won't respond to you again.
0: His clear eyes twisted into a squint. He stared at me a little, then bent his head down and fell prone among the other blind shades. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, with Dante, I hope you'll subscribe. If you're just dropping in here, I hope you'll go back and catch us. There is so much behind us at this point. What is this? The 31st episode? Good Lord, there's so much behind us. Go back and catch up. Check out my website, MarkScarborough.com or WalkingWithDante.com for this passage and connect with me on Twitter under my own name, Mark Scarborough. I'd be glad to start a conversation with you about this passage or you can respond on my website and we can talk there and I hope you'll check in next time on the next episode in which we finish off canto six and the gluttons on the podcast walking with dante